1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I, was, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Caiaphas, then by the twelve. The grass wither and the flower fades, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. My topic this morning is evangelism. Or, I'm sorry, evangelicalism. Excuse me, I misspoke. I found it rather interesting as I picked up my mail this morning. The first thing that I saw was the announcement of a uh, conference coming up on the Reformation. And this is uh, sent to us from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Evangelism is a word that we hear a lot these days. But that's not anything new. In 1976, with the election of Jimmy Carter as President of the United States, Newsweek magazine proclaimed on its front cover, The Year of the Evangelicals. Now, you may recall that Carter, a Southern Baptist, uh, uh, made his faith a central issue of that campaign. That same year, however, there was a poll conducted, and among the self-professed evangelicals, Less than half of them could recall as much as half of the Ten Commandments. So who are these evangelicals? Today, the evangelicals are being blamed or credited, depending upon your position, for the election of Donald Trump. Now, aside from the populist nature of the two campaigns, I cannot think of two more different candidates than Jimmy Carter and Donald Trump. But the evangelicals are being blamed or credited, whichever you say, of putting these men in office. According to many of the world's pundits, nearly every Sunday morning when we are here and we prepare to take of the communion table, Pastor Hickey will extend the invitation to those who are, and I quote, members in good standing of an evangelical church. Now, these few examples that I've given you here show that there truly is much confusion about just exactly who or what is an evangelical. Well, pastor and theologian Joel Beakey, some of you may recognize that, I hope some of you recognize that name, but he's written a very helpful booklet entitled, What is an Evangelical? And I have drawn from this booklet for my message today. I believe he has an excellent analysis of the term and guidance for developing a full understanding of the word and its application. Actually, in the 16th century, Martin Luther began to refer to the evangelical church when speaking of Protestants. In many places in Europe and Russia, an, an evangelical is any Christian who is not Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. According to the Institute for the Study of American Evangelicalism, yes, they exist, 
Evangelical first refers to a Christian who affirms certain doctrines and practices. Now, these doctrines and practices uh, consist of biblicalism, which is the belief that the Bible is the only authoritative spiritual guide. They believe in Christcentrism. And yes, I stumbled over that word, but that basically refers to Christ's death on the cross as the heart of faith and life. Also, conversionism, repentance from sin and faith in Christ are essential to salvation. Activism, Christians must work together to spread the gospel to all nations. Now, the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada adds to this same list orthodoxy and orthopraxy, subscribe to historical doctrines, ethical and liturgical tenets and practices, and also transdenominationalism, which is basically saying that all evangelicals must work together uh, as members with members of other churches for social and political activities. The second, according to these organizations, evangelical can refer to movements united as much by style as by belief and political activities. Third, this opens up a whole spectrum from Reformed to Pentecostal to Roman Catholic. This word, this would embrace such things as uh, Christianity Today, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and so on and so forth. As you can see, it seems that something has gone uh, particularly amiss. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I forgot to pray as I concluded the Scripture reading, so could we pray for just a moment? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that we've been given the opportunity to examine this issue and pray, Lord, that uh, my words will be fruitful and beneficial and that we will come to a clearer understanding of not only the term evangelical, but also, Lord, who, would you, who you would have us be in your name. All this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. Pardon me for my snafu there. I want to read a, an excerpt from this uh, book that I was telling you about, the pamphlet from Joel Beakey. Richard Lovelace says that an evangelical impulse is an urgent drive to proclaim the saving, unmerited grace of Christ and to reform the church according to the Scriptures. In this, he draws upon what are sometimes called the formal and material principles of the Reformation, the authority of Scripture alone, the salvation by faith in Christ alone. Yet another definition of the evangelical is provided by the 1846 Constitution, of the Evangelical Alliance, which adopted the following articles of faith, the divine inspiration of Scripture, the trinity of persons in the Godhead, the depravity of man, the meditation of the divine Christ, the mediation, excuse me, the mediation of the divine Christ, justification by faith, conversion and sanctification by the Holy Spirit, the return of Christ to judge the world, the ministry of the Word, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, according to David Wells, 
People in the 20th century viewed the core of evangelism, evangelicalism, excuse me, I keep confusing those two words, viewed the core of evangelicalism in three ways. Some defined it as confessional, that is, its center is the confession of the specific biblical doctrines. Some saw evangelicalism as an organizational fraternity, a broad coalition of churches, missions, ministries, media, and businesses loosely united for various common causes or joint enterprises. And still others saw it, saw at its core, a charismatic, not in doctrine or organization, but in its spiritual intuition about the presence of the Holy Spirit. The organizational and charismatic understanding of evangelicalism have taken the lead since the 60s and 70s, while the emphasis on confessional definition has been relegated, relegated to the back seat. Clearly something has gone wrong. We have lost track of who we are or the identity of the evangelical. In answer to the question, what is an evangelical, yet another organization, the National Association of Evangelicals in the United States, states, evangelicals take the Bible seriously and believe in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. The NAA affirms a number of fundamental doctrines, but notably absent from this list is the doctrine of justification by faith. Clearly, something has gone wrong. We have lost track. Many people would say at this point that we ought to abandon the term altogether, just come up with a new term or just declare it as of uh, no valid purpose. But James Boyce, who passed away several years ago, but Boyce was the uh, pastor of 10th Presbyterian in uh, Philadelphia. James Boyce defended evangelicalism, but had this to say, and I think he really hits it on the head, what is wrong with the evangelicals? The answer is that we have become worldly. We have abandoned the truth of the Bible and the historic theology of the church, which expresses those truths and we, are, and we are trying to do the work of God by means of the world's theology, wisdom, methods, and agenda instead. Boyce said this was often less of a public renunciation of the biblical truth as a tragic neglect of it. He wrote, Does that mean that evangelicals deny the Bible or have officially turned their backs on classic Christian doctrine? Not necessarily. It is more often the case that the Bible's theology just does not have meaningful bearing on what we think or do. It has a lot to do with self-esteem, good mental attitudes, and worldly success. There is not much preaching about sin, hell, judgment, or the wrath of God, not to mention the great doctrines of the cross such as redemption, atonement, reconciliation, propitiation, justification, grace, and even faith. Our definition of evangelicalism to be of any meaning at all simply must be rooted in biblical realities, in Scripture itself. The root meaning of the word evangelical comes from the Greek word evangelion, which means good news and is often translated in the gospel 
as gospel in the New Testament. Now, Dr. Beakey has done an exegesis of the passage that I read, the short passage of 1 through 5 of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, and I think he's come up with some significant points that need to be taken into account. Seven points to be specific. In the passage that I read to you, it is an authoritative message from God. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. 1 Corinthians 11.23 also says, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. The gospel is God's message, and it is not to be rejected or changed, but received and transmitted to others. Now we see this in, in verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3 in the passage that I read. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. The authoritative message. It presents the unique person and mission of Jesus Christ. Paul called Jesus the Christ, the Christ, or the anointed one of God, alluding to the Old Testament anointing of prophets, priests, and kings to mediate God's grace to his people. Jesus Christ is God's unique son sent to save sinners. We see this in verse what I would call 3b, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. It proclaims atoning death of Christ. Christ died for our sins. This means that Christ, the innocent one, received the punishment which we, due to our sin, deserve. He alone has atoned for the sins of his people. Neither our works nor our prayers can atone for sin. Again, all that is contained in that short passage 3b. In verse 4 we read, It likewise proclaims the bodily resurrection of Christ, that he rose again the third day. The resurrection confirms the validity of Christ's death as an atoning sacrifice and secures our justification. Likewise, Christ's resurrection fulfills his own prophecy and attests to his trustworthiness as a guide to salvation and his identity as the incarnate Son of God. Point five, it asserts the historical reality of these events. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And he was seen of Caiaphas, then of the twelve. These are historical facts. The facts that constitute the foundation of the Christian faith. Hence the prominence given to these facts in the documents such as the Apostles' Creed, which we say each Sunday morning, or practically each Sunday morning. Paul's argument is that these facts are not, if these facts are not true, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. That is meaningless and powerless and worthless. Verses 3 and 4 also attest of the sovereignty of God over human history. Twice Paul asserts that these things took place according to the Scriptures, Though Christ's death was carried out by human beings acting of their own will, God sovereignly directed everything they did 
in order to fulfill the promises recorded in the Old Testament. It teaches the necessity of faith in the biblical gospel, the gospel which I preached unto you, he says, which also you have received, and, wh- and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved. This message, is not, this message is not an announcement that we are saved, but the preaching of Christ as Savior, and the call to trust Him to be saved. The gospel is fundamentally is fundamental to Christianity. This may sound obvious, but apparently much of society has lost note of, has lost track of this. All biblical doctrine is important and shapes our spiritual lives, but not all doctrine is fundamental is fundamental, that is foundational. Now, those of us here who are involved at Answers in Genesis stand firm on the idea of six 24-hour days of creation. But we declare everywhere, every time we're asked, and all throughout our website, that creationism, six 24-hour day creationism, is not a salvation issue. Uh, you are not, you know, the uh, Paul tells the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and Him crucified and you will be saved. And believe in six 24-hour days of creation. It's not what it says. And it is not a salvation issue. Now, I would add my own caveat there. If you have a problem with the idea of historical Adam, we need to talk. I do believe there was one Adam. And without the first Adam, there is no meaning in the death of the second Adam, Christ Jesus. Great theologians such as John Calvin and Francis Turretin recognized long ago that not all doctrine is fundamental to faith. A person can be a Christian and yet err in certain doctrines. Calvin warned against dividing the church over secondary matters that do not overthrow the foundation. Now this is where we, I I believe, where we come into denominationalism. Uh, You know, it's been said, if you have one, you are subject to rebellion. If you have two, you're subject to civil war. But where you have a multitude, you can garner brotherhood and working together. John Calvin wrote, For not all the articles of true doctrine are of the same sort. Some are so necessary to know that they should be certain and unquestioned by all men as the proper principles of religion. Such are, God is one, Christ is God and the Son of God, our salvation rests on God's mercy, and the like. Among the churches there are other articles of doctrine disputed which still do not break the unity of faith. Since all men are somewhat beclouded with ignorance, either we must leave no church remaining or we must condone delusion in those matters which can go unknown without harm to the sum of religion and without the loss of salvation. Basically emphasize the essentials and de-emphasize the non-essentials. The gospel, uh, Joel Beakey writes on this same subject, and he says, the gospel is like a well. At ground level, we see a small, clearly defined opening. But as we look deeper, a great depth is revealed. And as we draw from this well, we discover an infinite supply of truth and grace. The gospel, in the deepest sense, 
is Christ Himself, the source of true evangelism, therefore is found in the gospel as recorded in Scripture. Our definition, our thinking of evangelicalism must be rooted in the gospel, in the Scripture, as it's found in God's Word. To find any other source and to begin with any other definition would be an error, or the Word does indeed become absolutely meaningless. A second point that must be made is that evangelicalism is a historical doctrine, a historical word. We live in a day when history and heritage are undervalued, even scorned. Sadly, this is the case even among professing Christians. The term evangelical, however, is profoundly historical and must be treated as such. If the root of the if the root of the evangelical tree is the biblical gospel, arguably its historical trunk is the Protestant Reformation. While the term evangelical is rooted in Scripture, it did not come into common usage until the 16th century, when Martin Luther and other reformers labeled themselves evangelicals in contrast to the Roman Catholic Church. They were not hereby claiming that there were no gospel believers in the Roman Church, nor did they believe that the gospel was not preached prior to their own time. They did believe, however, that many human traditions had obscured the gospel, and that during the Reformation the gospel shone forth with greater clarity, brilliance, and soul-igniting heat. So now we see the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Today, however, it is common to define evangelicalism in terms of the 18th century revivals in the Eastern-speaking world, and there is some truth in this. The Great Awakening profoundly shaped evangelicalism in Britain and America. Beakey writes on this, I believe it is best to understand evangelicalism as a movement that began in the 16th century Protestant Reformation, for Luther and Calvin considered themselves to be teachers of the evangelical faith. Out of the Reformation sprang the Puritan movement that flourished in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. The Puritans often used the term evangelical to describe faith and obedience rooted in the gospel. Leaders involved in the 18th century revivals, such as Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, saw themselves as the descendants and heirs of both the Reformers and the Puritans. Today, unfortunately, this word has fallen into a, mail, a maelstrom of beliefs. The idea that a person can be, evangel can be an evangelical Roman Catholic, however, is self-contradictory. For the Roman Church rejected the core of the evangelical doctrines of the Reformers at the Council of Trent. Either a person is faithful to the basics of the gospel defined by the Reformation, or he is faithful to the teachings of Rome about salvation. Nor is it enough for a person or organization to reject Roman Catholicism to be considered an evangelical. For evangelicalism, that largely abandons its Reformation heritage, is not evangelical at all. Despite all of this, the historical trunk of evangelicalism implies that our definition should be guided by the theological guidelines of the Reformers. We can almost say this together. Often this common Reformation heritage is identified by the five solas that guard the gospel. 
sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola Christus, sola fide, and soli deo gloria. This is the root of evangelicalism. The alliance of confessing evangelicals, that pamphlet I showed you earlier, rightly takes its stand on these five solas of the Reformation as set forth in the Cambridge Declaration of 1996. Reformation truths have always been the heart of evangelicalism. Martin Luther said in his larger catechism, God does not lie. My neighbor and I, in short, all people, may deceive and mislead, but God's word cannot deceive. These truths shape the preaching of such diverse figures as Jonathan Edwards and John Wesley in the 18th century, Charles Spurgeon and Dwight Moody in the 19th century, and D. Martin Lloyd Jones and A. W. Tozer in the 20th century. Now, you would not think that list of opposites could find common ground in evangelicalism, but indeed, I think what I'm showing is they do. Wesley said, I receive the written word as the whole and sole rule of my faith. He also wrote, God himself has condescended to teach the way for this very end he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of the book. Let us pray.